Happy New Year, everyone. It is a joy to be in church with you this morning. Uh, you'll see this beautiful picture on the screen here. Our theme for 2023 is captured in that word, renovate. The picture uh, was drawn by our own Jared Weeks. Isn't he talented? Incredible. Now, you may, you may clap, of course. Um, we'll, we'll get into a series actually two weeks from now on Isaiah 6 through 12 that I will be calling Renovate. This idea of Renovate is found all over in the scriptures. We, we hear in the scriptures that God is a God who makes things new. He's constantly making things new. He's making things new in your life and in my life, and he's putting us into this incredible mission where we're involved in making things new for other people. Uh, it's, it's a great life, this life of faith that God's called us into. So one of the things that I want us to focus on in January is what I would consider be the most important way to start the year off, which is 21 days of prayer. John Bunyan, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said it like this. He said, um, you can always do something once you've prayed. Have you ever felt that tension spiritually where you say, like, I've been praying about something, now I want to do something about it? That's true. You can do something uh, once you've prayed, but you can't do anything until you prayed, is what he said. And I think that we need to start every year off like that, together, corporately, aligned, spiritually, praying together. The, the process of 21 days of prayer is really simple. You grab one of these booklets, they're out in the lobby, and there are 21 days of devotional thoughts that lead us into prayer together. So please, grab one of these books, but more importantly, participate day after day. It starts tomorrow, you pick up with the first devotional, you make your way through. Next Sunday, we have Pastor David Johnson from Grace Church in Dennis, and he's going to come in and share more about how God laid Cape Kids Mills on his heart. He's the co-founder of this local ministry that really helps put food in backpacks for kids over the weekends who don't have access to school lunches at that time. I'm really encouraged to have Pastor David with us to share the story, but more importantly, the scripture that led him in this direction. So this morning, we are going to be taking a look at this theme from the lens of our mission statement. Our mission statement is expressed in three words. The first word is worship. The second word is transformation. And the third word is mission. And I submit to you that when a church pursues those things, worship, transformation, and mission, that church will advance the gospel, will make a difference for the kingdom of God. I want to focus on that middle word, transformation, this morning. Now, the Greek for this word is metamorphe. It means to change from one form into another form. And, of course, we take that term and we have our scientific term metamorphosis. We see this in nature. We see a tadpole becoming a frog. We see a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to love to catch these little critters and watch them go through this process. Learned a couple of lessons on the way, important lessons. For example, if you put a caterpillar in a plastic container, you need to poke holes in the lid. Because 
that caterpillar will never become a butterfly. I also learned that when the caterpillar goes through the stages of metamorphosis, it goes into the cocoon phase, and then it forms a chrysalis. As that caterpillar is emerging and it's becoming a butterfly, you do not want to pull it out of the chrysalis. You need to let it go through the process of struggle. Why? That butterfly will never learn how to fly. It needs that process to learn how to fly. The scriptures tells us through that Greek word, transformation, that God is taking you through a similar process. He's changing you from one form into another. Where does that begin? Well, the process of uh, transformation begins at conversion. You see, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you entered into a process of radical change. Paul tells us about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, spiritually speaking, this means that I couldn't do anything to change my spiritual status before God. I couldn't enter into a right relationship with God through my own willpower or my own behaviors or actions. I was spiritually dead. And if the Christian message ends here, it is the most pessimistic, depressing message that you've ever heard. But Paul continues in verse 4, and he tells us that God did something about our spiritual condition. He says this, when I get the slide, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Radical change. Death to life formerly an enemy of God, now brought into the family of God. Radical, radical change we are talking about in this Christian faith. Here's the thing. People, when they hear the gospel message in the Christian faith, sometimes think that that is like the basics of the Christian faith. It's the ABCs of Christianity, if you will. And we know that in our own desires to progress and to grow, we want to move beyond the ABCs. I want to go into deeper things, learn deeper knowledge than just the basics. So we think to ourselves, I need to move into the D through Z of Christianity. Some of us, that might be certain theological strains that we become very you know, fixated on, uh, end times things, or studying deeper in the Bible, or something along those lines. And don't get me wrong, we need to learn those things, and we need to grow in those things. But I like what Timothy Keller says. He talks about the gospel, and he says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the a through Z of Christianity, meaning this, that spiritual growth happens not by going beyond the gospel, but by going deeper into the gospel, because every Christian virtue flows out of the gospel message. Now, we're in the book of Romans this morning, and in the book of Romans, Paul builds this argument throughout the book. It's a brilliant book of the Bible. He makes these therefore statements. You know, one thing logically leads into another thing. There's many therefores in the book of Romans, 
But I want to emphasize the progression through four therefore statements. The first is Romans 3.20, which I would call the therefore of condemnation. Paul says in the NIV translation, therefore, no one will be declared righteous. That's that spiritual death that he's talking about in Ephesians 2. Apart from a serious intervention on God's part, I'm spiritually stuck. We move into the therefore of peace in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the gospel message. We move from the therefore of peace into the therefore of assurance in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you place your faith in Christ, you become a child of God. Nothing you could do and nothing anyone could do to you could change your spiritual standing before God. That's the therefore of assurance. Now, what's incredible about this book of Romans is for 11 chapters, Paul just keeps talking about all the things God has done so that you can be brought into right relationship with him. And it's only as we get into Romans chapter 12 where there is a therefore that involves us doing something. Listen to what Paul says here. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the therefore of commitment. And quite possibly maybe the most important therefore in the book of Romans, because Paul is arguing this, because of all that God has done for you, therefore, doesn't it make sense that you would offer him your life? This is how we enter in more deeply to the process of transformation. And all of this transformation, I submit to you this morning, flows out of the gospel. In fact, I want to show you from these verses five ways that the gospel transforms us. First, we're going to see that it transforms our motivations. Look at the very first part of verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore. Now, when you are appealing to someone, you're speaking to them at the motivational level. If this is true, doesn't it make sense that you would be motivated in this way? I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Now, what are these mercies of God? We've already talked about it, haven't we? Because of all the things that God has done for you that I've been expressing to you, therefore, aren't you motivated to live for him? Now, you often hear people talk about living for God and they, they, they try to start with the shoulds. Well, these are all the things you should be doing for God instead of starting with what? What he's done for you. 
Paul doesn't do that, does he? I think Paul understands this about Christian growth. Christian growth tends to be more indirect than direct. You know, we live in a very kind of um, self-motivated world where if I want to grow in some area of my life, well, then I just, I, I, I master it. I learn how to progress in it. Uh, every New Year's, right, we make these New Year resolutions. I want six-pack abs this year, so I'm going to go on this 30-day fitness plan, and I'm going to come out metamorphosized, right? I'll look like a totally new body. I do those plans every year. It doesn't work, by the way. It's more indirect, you're not taking like seven and eight steps towards Jesus. Yes, listen, there's effort involved into growing in Christ. But Paul always wants to start with not the seven or eight steps that I take, but the 10 billion steps that God took towards me. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, he describes these 10 billion steps. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ten billion steps in your direction. God took on flesh. God lived the life you couldn't live. God died in your place on the cross. God rose again from the dead, certifying that you can have new life in him. He did all of these things for you. You know what we talk about in theological terms to describe all of that? We talk about grace. Grace. I couldn't earn this. I couldn't take any steps to make all of this happen. He had to do it. And if that's true, then there are some logical responses to this grace that I should have in my life. The first logical response to grace is gratitude. Not making amends. When someone does something so beyond your ability to make happen, when they do that for you and they offer that to you as a gift, how do you respond to that? Well, I suggest that you embrace it, not that you try to pay them back for it. You embrace it and you rest in the reality of it. That's the proper response of grace. Thank you, God. The second is that I give grace to others. If God is a God of grace, doesn't it make sense that God wants me to become an agent of grace too? He wants me to extend that grace to other people. I believe that Christians grow best in environments where they extend grace to one another. I believe that's so important for church life. If you walk into a church and that church lacks grace, it's pretty difficult to grow in that environment. On the other hand, if that church has grace, then I flourish in that environment. I think it's true. Climate affects what can thrive. I was reading some articles recently. I guess there's some controversy in the Gulf world around the country of Saudi Arabia. I think they're trying to cherry pick some uh, pro golfers into an alternative circuit of golf. Um, 
You're asking the wrong guy if you want more information on it than that. I just was looking at the situation and thinking of to myself, how in the world is golf supposed to thrive in Saudi Arabia? Because when I think of Saudi Arabia, I think of lizards and not birdies and eagles, right? They're pumping like millions of dollars into us. Some of the courses, they've been able to get grass and that kind of stuff, but I've heard that there are a lot of courses that are just sand, and you paint white lines, and um, the way you play the ball is you carry around a carpet square with you, you put the carpet square on the ground, you tee off from there. So it sounds to me like this is going to be an uphill battle. (laughs) Golf can survive there, but it's not going to thrive there. And growth can survive in a church where grace has not been cultivated, but it's not going to thrive there. What does that kind of church that doesn't cultivate grace look like? Well, it looks like people caring more about being right than extending love to one another. It looks like emphasizing religion via the rules rather than the relationship. The rules become so important that we start looking at the rules that the Bible does give us and we say, those aren't good enough. I need to like add more rules to the rules that are in the Bible. I've witnessed in these types of, rela- these types of environments that people don't grow because they desire to love the Lord and please him. They grow, uh, well, I don't even know if this is growth. They just care about who sees me. Do I look good to them? I've heard of Christians coming out of those environments, and yes, they, they survived it, but I've never really heard of someone coming out of that environment and thriving in it. Listen, a church of grace looks like this. It's a place where we build genuine relationships that get down to the level where I say, I trust myself with these people. I share something about myself. It might be something real, something where I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say this. And guess what? They don't judge me. They don't contemn me. They extend grace to me. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't say hard things to one another. But when I say hard things to someone else, it's because we've developed a relationship of trust where they know that I'm not doing this because I'm superior to them, but where I care about them. I have their best interests in mind. You know, environments of grace, I suggest as well, they don't motivate through guilt. I don't think that's the best way to motivate people, guilt. Why? Well, we have all of these defense mechanisms that we create to get out from under guilt, right? Guilt tends to produce these knee-jerk reactions where you're like, oh, I feel really bad about this. I'm going to change this. But it's not sustainable. Why? Because I can look over to the person at my right and see that they're doing worse things than I am. So I just say to myself, well, they're worse than me, so I can keep doing what I'm doing. That's fine. I would also say that I have this world-class ability to justify myself. I do this because I have to. Grace doesn't, or guilt, doesn't produce transformation. What I'm going to argue is grace does. Grace does. Now, when Paul talks about 
changing in the Bible, he often goes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, I want to show you an example of this. He's talking about becoming a generous church, and he says to these people, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see what Paul's doing there? Look at what Jesus did. Don't you want to be like him? He extended you grace. Now you do that with, with your life and with your time and with your treasures. So here we have transformed motivation. We move into transformed audience. This idea of transformation is metamorphosis. It's change that comes from within, change that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Any change that we speak of in terms of spiritual change that happens with us that does not come through the Holy Spirit, that change is fake change. That's like pinning wings on a worm and calling it a butterfly. And let me tell you, that is a gross imitation of the real thing. Paul uses two words to talk about change in these two verses. One is transformation. That is the change that comes about by the Holy Spirit. The other word that he uses is the word conform. So you're either transforming or you are conforming. I like how... Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase, captures this idea of conforming. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. Ooh, now that's challenging. I'm either conforming or I'm transforming and the difference, the spirit-led process, the answer to how I get into that process is found in verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the difference between transforming versus conforming happens to be right worship. Let me give you a definition of worship, one that I think makes a lot of sense based on this verse. Worship is a daily choice, a proactive choice to offer yourself to God. A daily choice, a proactive choice to offer yourself to God. So it's not just the music that we sing on Sunday. It's not just your personal quiet time habit that you're developing, hopefully. It's not just coming to church on a Sunday morning and fellowshipping with other believers. As important as all of those things are, worship is a daily proactive choice to offer my life to God. And Paul is saying that that choice day in and day out will change you. How does it do that? I think the best answer that I've been given for that question was given to me by Os Guinness. He says this, It is easy to buck a crowd, not too hard to march to a different drummer, but is truly difficult, perhaps impossible, to march only to your own drumbeat. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. 
A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all other audiences, an audience of one. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that if you want to be transformed in the way that God intends to become more like Jesus, you actually just need to simplify your life. You're simplifying it down to who do I need to seek approval from? And I find that pretty simple because I live in a world that pulls me in a lot of different directions, whether it's people or groups or philosophies, where I feel like I need to win approval from these people. So Paul's saying you don't need approval from two groups or three groups or four groups. You really need to whittle it down to one. And when you whittle it down to one, then you can say, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything to gain. I just need to live my life to please him and him alone. So you want to know how simple it gets? You wake up in the morning, your first prayer of the day is, God, help me to please you today. And then when you go to bed at night, you close down the day saying, God, did I please you today? You do this by offering him three things. You offer him your life. You offer him your mind. You offer him your desires. Now notice what I didn't say. I said that praying that kind of prayer will make your life simpler, but I never said that it will make your life easier. You see, there's this stream of Christianity that says, well, you know, if I submit wholly to the will of God and if I just have enough faith, well, then I get to live out on easy street for the rest of my life. I'm going to be comfortable in my existence. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. It's all going to go right for me. The Bible never says that, not once. Now, I will say this, you do receive blessings from God, but a big part of the blessing process is you're looking at the world differently now, and you're finding blessings in places that you never found them in before. But you don't get the easy life. Why? Well, God cares about changing you, and have you ever gone through change in your life? I have, and in my experience, I think you'll agree with me here, change always involves pain. It's not easy, but it's simpler, so much simpler. In fact, let's talk about it in terms of living. We all ask a big question of living. We ask the question, what is the will of God for my life? I'm sure you've asked it. I've asked it. And when we think of that question, I'm asking it really for two reasons when I ask it. One reason I'm asking it is I want confirmation of my decisions that I've been making, right? God, I want to live out your will. Did I marry the right person? Did I pick the right school? Am I in the right job right now? Am I living in the right area right now? Those are pretty complex questions that we ask of God. And I'll tell you that God has given us wisdom in the Bible to discern answers to those questions. Another way we might ask the question is, I want to know what God knows about a situation. God, how is my life going to turn out? And I suggest to you this morning that more often than not, 
God reserves that information for himself because if I knew all of those answers, it wouldn't require any faith of me to live this life. But hear me correctly, God does have a will for your life, a very important will for your life, and that is expressed again in verse 1. I'm going to come back to Peterson's paraphrase. I think it helps open this up. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you, Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So this is God's will for your life. He wants you to offer him your everyday moments. I had someone between the service say, what does it mean to offer my life to God every day? And I'm just going to get really simple with you. It means you do many of the things you're already doing, and God is at the center of it. He's leading that. So if you're in the work world, Colossians 3.23, work is unto the Lord. Include him in your business meetings. If you're on a travel all the time, include them in the drive time and the airplane and the conversations that you're having, uh, maybe the decisions you're making when it comes to your entertainment. If you're a mom at home with kids, even if it feels like you're stuck in a repeat loop sometimes, like I'm repeating yesterday all over again, include them in that process. Include him in everything. In fact, don't just include him, but offer it to him. Let him lead it your everyday moments. I'm convinced that there's one word in the English language that if we say this to God regularly, it will help us to live the will of God for our lives. It's a simple word. It's a word that I have thrown out very flippantly at times. It's also a word that when I say it and I mean it, it's a difference maker. And the word is yes. You know, when you say yes to God, you will start living God's will for your life. And I'm not talking about some kind of robotic manual obedience to God where you're just like this this mechanism that walks around and you're like, download God, tell me what to do, something like that. I could say that better. Oh, well, I didn't. But what I'm talking about is developing a relational trust with God where you get to the place where you implicitly trust God. That's what we're getting at here, okay? Listen, if God's the creator of the universe, and if God created you, and if God knows you better than you know you, and if God has your best interests in mind, and if God knows everything that's taking place all the time around you, doesn't it make sense that I get to a place where I trust him enough with the decisions of my life that I say yes to him? Yes. Because otherwise, if I start saying no, I'm saying to God, I trust you up to this point, and for the rest of this, I need the control. And that's not going to get me to live the will of God in my life. So we're talking about transformed motives, transformed audience. We're talking about transformed living. I want to move into this idea of transformed mind. 
how do I get into this process of change? Well, Paul says that the way I participate best with this process of change is by the renewing of your mind. In other words, let God change the way you think. Let God change the way you look at the world. This is your worldview. The worldview, uh, your worldview is basically the ideas that you really think about the world that inform the way you live within the world. How does God change your mind? How does he renew your mind? Well, some people suggest that I listen to my feelings and that God speaks to me via my feelings. Others would say that God is speaking to me most profoundly through my experience, like these coincidences all lined up, and therefore God must have been working. Don't hear me wrongly. I do believe that God speaks to us subjectively. But for thousands of years, the one answer that Christians keep coming back to is the scriptures, the word of God. We speak of the scriptures as a mode of communication, as special revelation. It means that God has spoken to us uniquely through the scriptures. So here's the thing. Uh, yes, God can speak to me through my feelings, but what if my feelings contradict the scriptures? Who is right? It's the scriptures. We speak of the scriptures as being God's words. It's as if they are the very words of God. I've been following a survey for several years now. It's produced by Ligonier Ministries. They call the survey the State of Theology. And for several years, they've been tracking adults in the United States of America and their view towards the scriptures. And more and more, they're finding that U.S. adults increasingly reject the divine authorship of the Bible. In other words, the Bible is just another religious text um, that I will accept the teachings based on my own personal view or the broader cultural assumptions that are around me. And what's really concerning about this trend in this survey is that a sizable population of Christians are holding to the same view, somewhere between a quarter and a third of Christians. Now, I think this is going to be a very honest conversation. I think there have been some really challenging questions asked of the Bible over the years, legitimate questions, questions that Christians should pause and take seriously and consider it. And there have been Christian theologians and scholars who have given robust, persuasive answers to those questions. So what happens if I have a challenging question and I don't go through the process of trying to find an answer, it becomes an unexamined belief that will undermine my confidence in the Bible. Now, Timothy Keller, he's one of my favorite authors in this kind of present moment. I've respected him for years. He, he wrote a book that became a New York Times bestseller called The Reason for God. And this book basically deals with many big questions that people ask of, you know, Christian faith, Bible, all of that. He has one chapter where he deals with this idea of the authority of the Bible. 
And he said this, that there's a great cost to allowing our unexamined beliefs to undermine our confidence in the Bible. He says, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever enter into a personal relationship with God? He speaks of relationships this way. Relationships, by virtue of being a relationship where there's someone outside of myself involved, creates the possibility for someone to contradict me, to think differently than I do. In fact, I would say that's probably not just a possibility, but a likelihood that someone might contradict you in a relationship. There was a movie that was created in the 70s called The Stepford Wives, and the premise of the movie was that these husbands in Stepford, Connecticut, they didn't like that their wives were contradicting their will, so what did they do? They replaced them with robots. Some of us are like, hmm, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) Hit the pause button for just a second there, because trust me, If you replace your spouse for a robot who always thinks like you and does what you want them to do, you are not marrying a spouse, you are marrying yourself, just like Dennis Rodman did when I was living back in Chicago. So if I go into the Bible and I pick and choose what I want to accept based on my own personal beliefs and the broader cultural assumptions, I am creating a Stepford God. So this is a God who is the God of my own thinking and not a God of genuine relationship where there can be real interaction. Keller says this, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of personal relationship with God, it is a precondition for it. What is an authoritative Bible? Well, a Bible that's not authoritative is a Bible that I stand over. And I say, I think this is right, and I like this, but I don't like that. An authoritative Bible stands over me. And it informs how I think and the decision-making process that I undergo. So let's move to our final transformation, and we're coming to desires here. I'm going to restate the flow of Romans 12, 1 through 2 like this. If you've been personally affected by the gospel, he's appealing to us by the mercies of God, the 10 billion steps that God's taken towards us. If you've been personally affected by the gospel, then you offer your life to God. Offer him each day. Offer him your whole life. Don't just offer him the scraps of your life. Offer him your mind too. Don't let your mind be persuaded by the philosophy du jour. Let your mind be guided by the word of God. And then listen to his conclusion. When you do this, you will discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable perfect. The sense of that word discern is to approve of something, to think well of it. So Paul is saying, if you will really worship God and let him change you, you will discover how wonderful it is. It's often said today, 
If you let God start leading your life, if you start conforming your life to the will of God, you are entering into Boresville. It's going to be boring. It's going to be the worst kind of life possible. You won't get to have any sort of fun. Let me just like get right down to it. Who do you think knows how to have fun and live like anyone else in the world knows how to have fun and live? Who created fun after all? Well, God, he's always had life. I promise you God hasn't spent one second of his life bored. He's never had one day of his life where he's like, I wonder what I should do today. (laughs) He knows how to live. So if you want to live the way that God knows how to live, Paul makes it really simple. Offer him your life. The more you give him of your life, the more you're going to find this is a really, really good life. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Now, I just want to read this simple prayer to you. Let's pray this together in our hearts. God, cultivate a desire for me, uh, for you in my heart this year. This is from Richard Foster. Spirit of the living God, be the gardener of my soul. For so long I have been waiting silent and still, experiencing a winter of the soul. But now, in the strong name of Jesus Christ, I dare ask, clear away the dead growth of the past. Break up the hard clods of custom and routine. Stir in the rich compost of vision and challenge. Bury deep in my soul the implanted word. Cultivate in water and tend my heart until new life buds and opens and flowers. Amen.